one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 606 for the week of Monday, March 10th, 2014. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Good to be here. Carry on. <laughs> oh, we shall carry on shortly, but first we have to welcome back to the show. It's been way too long since we've had her on. Please welcome back Gina Hurley. Glad to be here, Sawyer. We're glad to have you back, and we hope to be hearing more from you this year as well as later on in the show. And joining us once again is one of the co-founders of the Spaceflight Group, which Talking Space is a proud partner of, and regardless of that fact, is just a great website for lots of space news and information and where we get a lot of our stuff from. So please welcome back to the show, Jason Ryan. God, I, I feel so honored to be here. Thank you so much for the intro there. Oh, no problem. We're glad to have you on. Now, it has been a few weeks since we've released an episode, and we apologize for that. We've had a bunch of things going on. One is a special surprise, which we'll tell you about at the end of the show, so we hope you'll stay tuned for that. But others of it are more just scheduling, as well as Gene has been having some minor health issues. So we're sending all of our best to him and hoping he gets better soon and will be able to join us again without sounding like Kermit the Frog. Well... Obviously, they, we could have plenty of excuses, but why keep talking about excuses when we have an episode to get to? So, since it's been so long, let's get right into things, and uh, we're actually going to start off with some more recent news. This past week, the White House and NASA combined released their fiscal year 2015 NASA budgetary request. It's hammered out by the White House and has some input from NASA. Keeping in mind this is just a request, it's not final, but if it is final, there are some big, big things in the works. So the NASA budget, according to this, would drop from $17.6 billion to a proposed $17.46 billion. So we're only talking about $186 million in decrease, which is about a 1% cut. However, when we look deeper into it, it's kind of what's being cut that has some issues here. So if we look at how it's appropriated, commercial space flight is getting an increase of $150 million. That comes with $300 million reduction to the exploration systems development. And I'm getting a lot of this information from a bad astronomer, I should add. So some of it's his opinion, as well as other sources with uh, strong numbers in it. However, it's where the cuts come in that a lot of people are concerned about. Earth science will be cut by $56 million. Astrophysics will be cut by $61 million, and planetary science cut by $65 million. Education will get a cut 
of $89 million. If you remember last year, that was concern. And this year would be a 24% decrease. Now, going back a little bit, I mentioned um, $61 million cut from astrophysics. Now, part of that, I should add, is the SOFIA spacecraft, which is a modified Boeing 747, which has basically a telescope inside of it, and it is a partnership with Germany. So there's some big cuts coming to this, and I only just scratched the surface of it. I know, Jason, you've been looking at this. What do you think? I have to admit, I, I, I love space, but I dread this time of year because the budget proposal comes out, and you have to sit there and listen to... Uh, Ms. Robinson, the NASA CFO, the chief financial officer, go over every uh, line 12 of, of, of page 16 paragraph, yeah, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's about an hour and a half long process. And so you kind of have to remain on the stick and really pay attention to what they're saying, even though a lot of it is kind of hard to listen to. But picking up that Sophia would be cut was something that a lot of people have reacted very negatively. I found that at the end, um, Charles Bolden said something that he, he – I don't know that I, I completely agree with, but he essentially said the following. We currently have the world's foremost astrophysics mission underway in the Hubble Space Telescope, and we're now working to launch in 2018 what we think will be the most incredible astrophysics instrument that humanity has ever seen in the James Webb Space Telescope. Sophia has earned its way. It's done very well, but I had to make a choice, and the choice was – we would cut. We would focus on these three, these uh, other efforts, and I'm like, well, I mean, okay. Um, now, the one part about the budget that I found very interesting, you, you touched on, was uh, the amounts that would be given to um, both the commercial efforts as well as um, the ex exploration efforts. Because there's a lot of talk out there that says, oh, well, you know, exploration gets so much and commercial gets so little. Well. That really didn't kind of work out this way because this time around, exploration got, and I'm looking at these numbers now, 3,905 million, I believe, 3,905 million. And I'm, I hate numbers because I'm a journalist. I, I can write, but I can't do math. So that's 3.9 billion. There you go. Thank you, Sawyer, because I'm, I'm basically a, a numerical idiot. 3.9 billion. And then the uh, exploration initiatives, which are essentially Orion and SLS, got 3.976. So a lot of the detractors out there, I think, was be able to should be kind of quiet. They should be kind of happy because not only are their efforts, I mean, the, the folks that are very com pro commercial, uh, they kind of ran almost on par with SLS and Orion this go around. Um, yeah, we lost Sophia, and I, I got to say that sitting in the telecom. There were a lot of reporters that focused on the fact that NASA's science and planetary objectives got cut for the third time in a row. You know, we, um, we've often been told when we watched the, the president's announcements that he, no one supports NASA more than he does. But then how come NASA's planetary missions have been cut three years in a row? Uh, and that's, you know, we got Curiosity. We got the Mars 2020 rover coming up. And there was a huge announcement, which kind of well, maybe a little bit slid under the radar uh, with the 2015 fiscal year budget proposal. And that was the um, Europa mission, which is something that a lot of people have wanted to see take place for a long time. Now, journalists and, and people out there, the, the public, they tend to focus on the negative. But, you know, you can't ignore the current economic situation the country's in. And having said that, 
I think that NASA did fairly well overall, and they did a fairly balanced approach. But it did seem like the big ticket items, commercial, SLS Orion, ISS, JWST, those really big missions uh, were the real winners here. And the littler things that, you know, some of us in the space community are supportive of and love, like Sophia, you know, they, they, they kind of went by the wayside. Uh, as it currently stands, uh, uh, Sophia will stand down in 2015 next year. I think it's a real contrast, the fact that an article I read on Aviation Week by Guy Norris uh, just a week and a half ago identified that Sophia was ready for full operational capability, that they had completed all of their, their science flights. At this point, it's a matter of analyzing data and verifying that they got everything for the commissioning of these original four instruments that they have. And, you know, here you are just waiting for data analysis to say, you're ready to go, uh, no restrictions, go do your main mission. And, uh, and here they're getting ready to put the brakes on it. And part of what's going to happen between now and 2015 is a heavy maintenance schedule that they've got scheduled to uh, start in June. So they got more instruments that are going to be commissioned. And wow, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow for the people that have, I know, put a great deal into this. Exactly, because I mean, it's not all negative. Obviously, we look at the numbers and say, oh, well, I wish they had more money. Obviously, we all do. If we're listening to this, there's a good chance you're a fan of NASA and space. But if you take a look at what's still being funded, the ISS gets funding through 2024. The planned Mars rover keeps on going uh, for 2020, as you mentioned. You've got the money for the Europa mission. You've got commercial, so there's still a lot of money going to places. Obviously, do we want more money going into science? There's a lot of people that would argue yes. At the same time, there's a lot of people that would argue why focus on, you know, the sciencey kind of stuff. But we'll see. I mean, the, it's still a pretty decent-sized budget. Would we like more? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just like you said, I think you said it was $183 million that it dropped from last year. And, I mean, the economy's not getting any better. I mean, as much as, you know, the, the government might try to tell us so, it's still kind of limping along, but NASA did fairly well. I mean, if they can, and that's another thing that I want to add is you have to review this kind of stuff and listen to, you know, kind of have your finger on the pulse. And uh, the word I'm getting is it's not going to pass in, in its current form. So I think the, the two words folks need to listen to when they, when they hear this is stay tuned. Exactly. That's a perfect way to put it. As I mentioned before, once again, this is only a proposal coming from the White House that still needs to pass through the entirety of Congress. And that in itself is going to be another adventure. So as I mentioned, part of the budget was funding the International Space Station through 2024, and that's our next stop on this Talking Space Tour. And first thing we're going to talk about are, um, I think, one of Mark's favorites, and I certainly know one of my favorites, and that's CubeSats. The International Space Station released a record 33 CubeSats from the International Space Station on Friday, February 28th. These CubeSats were a methodical series of deployments of miniature Earth imaging satellites for a San Francisco-based company that's coming from Spaceflight Now. These were released in pairs over a period of 17 days, including 28 for a company called Planet Labs and 5 for private engineering research firms and institutions in Lithuania and Peru, to quote the article. So that began on February 11th, and they were released using the space station's Japanese robotic arm. Uh, they were launched to the complex, by the way, aboard Cygnus back in January, or the Orbital Science spacecraft. 
so those have been sitting inside the Kibo Laboratory, which is once again the Japanese module, and uh, those were released as well. So, <laughs> heck, they're commercializing sending up little nanoracks and sending up CubeSats aboard Orbital and even from release from the space station. I think that's great. I think it's cool. Uh, it's amazing to have that number deployed to provide the opportunities that are there for some very significant uh, science observations to the parties that have proposed them and worked it and got it approved. You know, it's, it's uh, big time significant to them. And yet, in the overall scheme of things, it's lightweight stuff. It's small and uh, certainly is, is something that I think is a good, uh, good promotion for the program to do those things. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think this is awesome. Uh, basically, in doing so, they've released the largest fleet of Earth-observing satellites ever. And they're all CubeSats. They're all tiny little things that maybe cost a couple thousand dollars, sometimes a little more, sometimes even less, depending on what's on board. But according to them, the plan of constellation of satellites called Flock 1 will be taking a look at Earth, and it will be looking at natural disasters, deforestation, agricultural yields, and other environmental changes. And uh, it says that they can track changes to the Earth's surface at an unprecedented frequency, again, according to the Spaceflight Now article. The only negative to this is that, based on the fact that it was launched from the space station, they can only observe between 52 degrees north or south of the equator. So it narrows your search, but... Then again, I don't think they're planning on observing the poles as much as they're planning on observing more habitable areas of the Earth. I, I like the idea. I mean, but I, I got to be honest, uh, you know, it's not something that I know a lot about. Uh, I, I must express my ignorance. I, I will become very adamant and, you know, slam my fist down on the table and say, yeah, this is how. But when it comes to CubeSats, I really don't know a lot about them. And I, I don't feel um, very, you know, qualified to speak about them. I just don't know enough about them. I know that they are interesting. They they show a decrease in size and and uh, requirements for what you know satellites uh, are normally known as. I mean, the satellites that I'm used to are about the size of a at best a, a small car, but they're usually about the size of a bus almost. So, cubesats are, are kind of looking at the tune like, okay, well, if they can prove that they can do it for less, but then again, that's that's about the that's, that's about the length and, and width of my knowledge on that subject, I'm afraid. So then what do you think about the commercialization of science then? Because th that's basically what this is coming down to now. The fact that the largest Earth-observing fleet of satellites was designed by a private company in San Francisco and launched aboard a commercial rocket. Well, who's the customer? Who's going to be paying for the product? That's my, that would be my next question because I, I asked that because I always hear the argument made, well, commercial can do it cheaper, better, faster – and I'm old. I've been around when the words cheaper, better, faster were first uttered, and they were anything but true. And, or as a NASA engineer friend of mine said, you can get two out of three, but not all three. Um, so I have to ask, who would be the customer for, for the commercialization of science? Who would be picking up the product? You know, that's, that's the thing. Uh, people use the term commercialization, but is it actually accurate? Um, so, again, I have to ask, who's the customer? That's a good point. I mean, because there is also a big difference when you think about it. You've got a dedicated team of NASA scientists who are then taking this data and giving it out to the public. Or you've got someone like the National Weather Service, who, if NASA launches a satellite, is then taking that data and providing it to the public. But what about a private company like this? That's a good question of who is going to be, you know, 
who's going to get the data out of it? Obviously, the company is hopefully planning on using it for scientific purposes, but are we ever going to see that? I don't know. And also keep in mind that although it was launched aboard commercial to get it into space, it had to be deployed by astronauts aboard the space station, which is still government. So, uh, although I do have a quote from the article from uh, the CEO of NanoRex, the company behind it, who says, This is the beginning of a new era in space commerce. We're helping our customers get a two-year head start in space. They don't have to wait around for a dedicated launch to space, but can instead catch the next rocket to the space station. This really is an interesting topic. I think the big question that we really need to define before we can answer any of our questions is, what is commercial? What is commercial space? And I don't think we can do that yet at this point, to be honest, because I think there's still confusion over what is considered commercial and what we're calling commercial versus what actually right. is. Right. So I think that brings up the interesting question of that, and we'll leave it at that. But I will stick with the International Space Station for one little bit um, to mention about the International Space Station as well, which hopefully by the time this episode comes out, the crew of three from the International Space Station aboard Expedition 37 and 38 will be on their way home. And that includes the three-member crew of Commander Oleg Kotov, cosmonaut Sergei Ryazinsky, and NASA astronaut Mike Hopkins who will return after 166 days aboard the International Space Station. Now, as long as everything went as planned, landing should have occurred at 11.24 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time, or 9.24 a.m. Local Time, which is 3.24 GMT, a lot of numbers <laughs> in there, in Kazakhstan. Um, hopefully that all went according to plan. The three... Crew members had quite the busy expedition, looking over the arrival of Russian progress resupply vehicles, Japanese and European cargo vehicles, as well as two commercial vehicles flown by Orbital Sciences. There were three spacewalks performed, including one with the Olympic torch, and uh, quite a busy time they had, and hopefully they've returned safely after their mission. That would then leave in charge for the next part of the expedition, astronaut Koichi Wakata, in charge, making him the first Japanese astronaut to command the International Space Station. Currently with Wakata are Rick Mastrakio as well as Russian cosmonaut Mikhail Turin. They are set to return in mid-May, but before that they will have three new crew members joining them on March 25th. That includes NASA astronaut Steve Swanson as well as Russian cosmonauts Alexander Svortsov and Oleg Artemyev, and I know I mispronounced every single one of those, so my apologies. Even Swanson? <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not Swanson. But my apologies to the Russian cosmonauts. Um, Skvortsov and Artemyev, I believe, are how they're pronounced, and I'm pretty sure that's wrong. But I'm going to leave it in there anyway. So uh, <laughs> best of luck to the three that have returned home, hopefully by this point, as well as best of luck for the launch coming up on March 25th, which, of course, we'll bring up again in a future show. Got to do it. Remember the good old days when we had uh, U.S. space shuttles with uh, U.S. and international crews that, by and large, the names were pronounceable to us humble Yankees? And there were seven of them, and we could pronounce all seven, and now we can't even yeah. pronounce three. Well, if you're a longtime listener of Talking Space, you know we're pretty accurate with our facts and pretty inaccurate with our pronunciations. So. <laughs> Hopefully you'll uh, you'll continually forgive us for that. And if you're still listening to us after almost five years, I guess you have. And if this is your first time, well, welcome to the show. 
Alright, so that brings us to the end of round number one, and we're now ready to move on to round number two to cover some launches that we missed in the time that we were off the air these last few weeks. And, uh, how about we start off with the one where we actually had somebody at, and so I'm going to hand this one off to Jason to talk about a GPS launch. Jason? It's always fun to go out with, with uh, United Launch Alliance because they, they're, they're pretty cool. They're pretty straightforward what you can and can't do. They don't, they don't, uh, there's, there's no curveballs. And, you know, you go out there and the first thing you do is you set up remotes. And we, you know, I'm just getting the Spaceflight Group's uh, website, spaceflightinsider.com, to the point where we set up, uh, I don't know, eight, uh, eight to nine remotes for each launch at Cape Canaveral. And I'm doing some of it too because, you know, the joys of being a small business owner, you, you can't just leave it to everyone else. you gotta, you got to pitch in as well, too. And so I'm trying to build our own fleet and get them out there. And, well, during that time, they you know, they actually they, they schedule it for the same time the tower rollback occurred. That's the mobile service tower, which covers the uh, Delta IV medium. And uh, it actually rolls – this huge building rolls back the distance of a football field. And it's very impressive, especially if you videotape it and then speed it up by a factor of about 16. It really looks cool then. Um, and the really good thing about it in terms, it's, it's, it's really great in terms of time because they set up, we do remote stuff in the morning of the launch, then we go and take a break and then we come back out at oh dark 30 or whenever it is and we watch the launch. And, uh, it was amazing to see, I, I, I kind of step away from the term, the, the, the return to flight for Delta four, because it has been a little while. They've had some problems with the RL 10, uh, upper stage engine, but they seem to have gotten that hammered out quite nicely from, from this last launch. Uh, and it, it took off right on time. And, you know, I, I had to wait around because I actually had remotes for the first time out there. I've only set up remotes twice. Once for, was for Maven. The first time was for Maven. I got pictures from Maven uh, from the pad, and then this time. And so I was really nervous. I had a lot of people help me and pat my hand and walk me through the process. And we uh, we set the remotes up, and uh, we go out there. And it's like everywhere I go, there's, an, there's a possum. I look over the side of the road, and there's yeah, it's roadkill, but it was still a possum. We go out. And we're waiting behind the fence, and there were so many photographers that were set up remotes that we had to go. Out and we had to go be bussed in in groups, and so we're waiting. I look over there and walk across the parking lot, and there's another possum. I go out there, and guys, I'm sweating bullets because I reach into my remote camera box, and the trigger that sets the camera off is covered in dew, and I'm like, oh no, you watch, my lens got dewed up, and I'm not going to get a picture. And so I take the camera out and look at the lens. There's no dew on it. It was far enough back inside the box that it was shielded from the dew and not far enough back that it caught the sides of the box. So I got a few 10 to 15 fairly decent shots, uh, a night launch shots, which were just uh, – it blew my mind. I've, I've seen so many people struggle with these, and i got to thank uh, the people who were directly responsible because they are not me. They are not I. Uh, that's Mike Howard with Cocoa Beach Photography and John Studwell with uh, who, who does photography for Palaka News, and they they hold my hand and walk me through the procedure. Anyway, we, we got the shots, great shots of igniting of the, the the ignition of the SRBs, great shots of it of it launching off the pad and lighting up Slick 37. So we get the cameras, we get back in the car, and I'm a happy monkey. And there's there's a possum looking at me from the bushes, and I'm 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 just getting concerned at this point because I'm sensing conspiracy. But it's all right. We get in the cars, and we go out, and we're leaving the gate, and I see another roadkill possum. And then I'm just about to leave the front gate, and I kid you guys not, there was a guard on the side of the road, you know, because you, 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 when you're coming in, you got to get badged and, and checked in. 
but on the other side of the road, which was unusual, and he was shooing off a possum. So, I mean, there were at least five possums that night. I'm like, <laughs> what is what is the story? Is there like a convention? I mean, yeah, I didn't get it, you know. But anyway, it was just kind of an odd little thing to note from the launch. But um, the night launch of Delta Four is always an impressive event because you can tell the, the vets from the rookies. The rookies will see SRB-7 kind of be okay with that, and this time there were two on there. Their ATK-provided uh, GEM-60 boosters, and they, they, they went off, okay, great. And then they'll see another two pieces of, of shining light coming off the rocket, and that's when you can see the rookies freak out. They'll, they'll think that the rocket has just crumbled in orbit, and it's not. It's so clear a lot of these nights, and we're very fortunate when they do it either at dawn or like just – just it's been dark for maybe an hour or so, you can actually see the fairings separate and tumble back to Earth. And so you'll see these two bright white-orange, uh, and they, they fade in and out, and people don't really understand what that is, but those of us that have been, they, we know they're, they're, they're tumbling back to Earth. So sometimes they'll, they'll catch the sun's light, and sometimes the engine uh, will be, is still lit in some cases, still got flame coming out, so we'll see that. And then, of course, other times it, it tumbles and we don't see it. And then... The same goes with the fairings. You can see them, two little lines lit up, and then they'll fade, and you'll think, okay, you won't see them more. Then they'll they'll tumble back into view, out of view. And just, it's just this amazing ballet that you get to see overhead during a launch. And um, the thing that I think um, really uh, – it's a GPS satellite. Yeah, a lot of people don't think that's all that interesting. But generally – and I, I can't remember the name of all the causeways out of the Cape and, Cape and Kennedy Space Center, but – it's usually they, they we were about three miles away. Yeah, you can get some decent pictures. Yeah, you can kind of see the launch. They took us to what I think was called. I'm not going to butcher it because I'll have my friends just coming out with knives. I can't believe you got that name wrong. Um, but one of the cause this causeway is about a mile and a half away. We were close enough that we actually heard the sounds of the various systems just before launch activate. We could hear the the, 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 the engines or the, the, the motors or whatever it was out there. And uh, there are a couple people that, that told me, I'm, I'm afraid I forgot, but you could actually hear them. And when the rocket ignited, you didn't hear it. See, that that's the great thing about Delta IIs, and in this case, at least, Delta IV. You don't just hear the launch. And it doesn't take about five to six seconds for the sound to reach you. It took, it was almost instantaneous, and you didn't just hear it, you felt it. Now Sawyer, I know that, and Mark, I know you both have been to shuttle launches, and you know what I'm what I'm talking about. There, you can watch as your clothes ripples from the shock waves, and you, you can you can feel it, the heat. Uh, that's what GPS two F five was for us. It was, um, it may not have been special in terms of payload, but in terms of experience, very 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 impressive. So uh, yeah, uh, it was a great launch, uh, good mission. And uh, as always, uh, lots of fun and never boring. Oh yeah, it's nothing like seeing a launch. Uh, and that was a great one at that. And the night launches, like you said, are always spectacular. I've never seen it unmanned, but that uh, that's my goal, especially at Delta. Well, uh, if memory serves, you are going to be down later this month, correct? Actually, as we speak, I'm down here, which means I'm going to be missing the SpaceX launch by one day. You've got to be kidding me. I'm, you got leaving, to I'm leaving Saturday. Savage. you got to stay an extra day, man. I'm telling you, you got to. If I didn't have school on Monday, I, okay. I'd be very happy to. So blame Syracuse University, everybody. Send them nasty emails. I'm joking. Yeah, exactly. They need to adjust their schedule for Sawyer's you know, launch viewing pleasure. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> 
gotten a little off topic here. But... What, what else have we got to talk about tonight? <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's probably the most interesting segue I've ever heard on this show. So, um... <laughs> I do the best I can, guys. I'm a, I'm a fair writer. I'm a terrible <laughs> talker, so I, I, I'm doing my best. That's all right. Well, thank you for helping us set a new president for how we need to um, link stories together, including going off on ransom. <laughs> anyway... Well, um, let's continue along then to uh, another launch that we missed, and this one was a little bit larger, and it was a NASA launch. This was the $1.2 billion satellite known as the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission, or GPM. GPM successfully lifted off on Thursday, February 27th at 1.37 p.m. Eastern Time, which was 3.37 a.m. local time at the Tanegashima Space Center in Japan. It's also 18.37 GMT. See, we made a promise to you guys that we'd improve on our GMT times, and we're trying. The satellite, which was 8,500 pounds in total, lifted off safely aboard a Japanese H-2A rocket. Everything went just as planned, and the mission is scheduled to begin operations shortly now that it's currently in its correct orbit. It will be observing rain and snowfall totals that affect our daily lives in many ways, according to a NASA's, according to a NASA scientist. Uh, so basically it's going to be taking a look at distributions of water as well as extreme precipitation events like hurricanes and blizzards as well as droughts and landslides and other major events which if you've watched the news have been of concern lately. Especially with concerns over global warming, it's going to be interesting to track how much precipitation there actually is. And coming from a school in Syracuse, New York, where I believe we are tied for fifth in the world for snowfall, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what this mission can do. And I had the pleasure of actually seeing the satellite at the Goddard Space Flight Center before it was shipped off to Japan. And it is a big spacecraft, and uh, <laughs> I'm excited to see what science it does. Well, you did hear that it, it, it actually had its uh, its launch window, I think, pushed back 30 minutes. Um, I maybe got the, the direction uh, wrong, but it was later. It was supposed to be, I think, at 107 uh, EST, and it was actually at 137 EST. And that was actually kind of interesting because it was pushed back to avoid uh, apparently striking the International Space Station or alleviating any concerns that there, there was the possibility of that. I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> what? I honestly, I, I was busy at the time of launch, so I didn't watch it. I did not hear that. Yeah, well, you can always tune into this great website called spaceflightinsider.com. We always have launch articles, and there's always some <laughs> poor, tired, sad monkey behind a keyboard listening in to every detail. It may not always be me, but there's someone there listening in. And, yeah, they, they actually pushed it back from 107 to 137, which would make it 4, which is 1607 to 1637 GMT. Or is it 5? 18. 18. Okay, so – Yes, you're correct. So, yeah, it actually got pushed back by 30 minutes to, in, uh, to uh, you know, have a kind of a hazard avoidance situation with the ISS. All right, so with that, that brings us to the end of round number two. So let's move into round number three, which first one was about news of recent times. Round two was about launches of the past. And now we're going to go into a more sciencey astronomy and type thing. So um, let's start off then with Mark. 
Well, I got to tell you, the, the headline that I saw caught my attention, and uh, apologies, I live in the past, but this is from the end of January 2014. It was a story that I saw on abc.net.au, and the headline is, Cloudy with a Chance of Molten Iron. And that's what got me interested in this little story about Lumen 16B, and this was the first ever map of weather on the surface of the nearest brown dwarf to good old planet Earth. Now, the details is that this was observed by the European Southern Observatory Very Large Telescope in Chile, and they mapped out these lighter and darker patches on the surface of this brown dwarf. It is six and a half light years away. It's in the southern constellation of Vela the Sail, and it's one half of a pair of brown dwarfs that were discovered last year. Now, in mapping out its atmosphere, they discovered that changes in brightness at different latitudes and depths as Lumen 16b rotated. What they found was this searing hot atmosphere of patchy clouds made up of droplets of liquid iron and other minerals that are in this atmosphere of hydrogen at temperatures over 1,000 degrees centigrade. Holy cow. How do you figure that out? How do you see it? I, I have to admire the scientists that not only do they wonder about these things, but they find ways to, to make it real and to get science and to get the observations that we're talking about in this news story. But this study that they have, this weather map of this brown dwarf, they say it brings them closer to understanding weather patterns in other solar systems. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I got to laugh. Here, weather has been in the news way more than we would like the last few months here in the U.S. and I know around the world as well. But here we are talking about weather patterns on the surface of a star six and a half light years away. Holy cow, I think that is, that is neat. And they're talking about the, this type of study in, is by exometeorologists. And uh, it's, it's funny, they talk about being able to predict whether a visitor to Lumen 16b could expect clear or cloudy skies. Um, these are some top people. Uh, Dr. Ian Crossfield from Germany's Max Planck Institute. They've written papers, uh, one of which shows up in Nature. Uh, University of Edinburgh's uh, Dr. Beth Diller was an author of a lead story in Astrophysical Journal Letters, examined the clouds at different altitudes within the atmosphere. And they learned that these weather patterns are quite complex. To me, I, I, all I can visualize is seeing it, it, it via telescope, but being able to see weather. I think that is so phenomenal. And to me, just an interesting story, but it's out of my world. It's not in the realm of things that I normally uh, know anything or hear much about. So, yeah, that's me. I think that really is cool. I mean, um, these are things that, you know, you hear about, and it's like we don't know that much about them, but brown dwarves are really cool. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm sorry, just that headline still got me right away when you sent that to me the first time. Raining molten iron. Cloudy with a chance of molten iron. Wow. That would take care of that snow problem you got there at Syracuse. <laughs> yeah, just a little. Oh. Um, I, I think I'd though rather have 130 inches of snow than 130 inches of molten iron. Take care of that breathing problem you might have, too. <laughs> Uh, molten iron coming out of the sky? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a little rainy day over that any any time, I think. 
<laughs> yeah, but um, if you were a scientist, I'm not sure you'd be saying the same thing, because this is pretty cool and could have some big scientific implications in the future. So, Mark, can I ask you what uh, news outlet put that story out? Sure, that was uh, www.abc.net.net.au slash science. So it was an ABC science story. Huh. Just, yeah, but not the mainstream media. you got to wonder how many people know what a brown dwarf is. I'm sure. not sure if I could definitely tell you the difference between a brown dwarf or a red dwarf or any other kind of dwarf star myself. And I did, like space. Ditto with me. I have a question. Aren't brown and red dwarves just like Gimli that's been out in the sun too long? No? <laughs> uh, well, not according to the news story. They say it's a low-temperature star, getting serious, I'm sorry to do that, that has failed to accumulate enough mass to reach the core temperature and pressure needed to ignite. Now, there's been some comparison that Jupiter or other gas giants in our solar system are like uh, not quite the size of a brown or red dwarf, but are... are shall we say, heading down that path. Isn't that correct? And from this news story, it says, some astronomers suggest that brown dwarfs bridge the gap between the largest planets and the smallest stars. So that sounds like uh, you're thinking the right way. Science. <laughs> yeah, we just got all sciencey here, which actually leads us into our next and final story. And this is one that... We talked about a very, very long time ago on Talking Space. I believe it might have been back in 2011 that we first mentioned the possibility, the announcement that they were going to be redoing the Cosmos series. If you recall, the original was called Cosmos, A Personal Voyage, and was hosted by Carl Sagan. That aired in 1980 and was seen mainly on public broadcasting stations in the U.S., However, as you recall, we discussed a reboot that was scheduled for spring 2014. Well, it may not be spring, but it is 2014, and on today's recording date, which happens to be the 9th of March 2014, a new one aired, and that is Cosmos, A Space-Time Odyssey. The 2014 remake of it, instead, is hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson, with executive producer Seth MacFarlane of Family Guy fame, which doesn't seem like it would meld well. However, the first episode aired tonight. The episode was titled Standing Up in the Milky Way. And, well, let's see. I know, Gina, you were watching it as well as I. What do you think? I watched it. Well, I gotta say, I was blown away. Now, Neil deGrasse Tyson's one of my favorite people on planet Earth anyways, but I thought the way that he, very much like Carl Sagan, brought very complex topics down to something that was easy to understand. He did an absolutely eloquent and very articulate job. Of course, the beauty of this show, and it was in 1980 with Carl Sagan, was that the visual that went along with the simplistic description of these complex topics um, was such a good marriage. And like tonight again, the same marriage was there between visual and audio that it made it very easy to wrap your head around some very complex topics. Um, he did the entire timeline of the universe within an Earth year. And um, that, I think, uh, for, my, for my son, he was very impressed by that. Uh, he always needs to know facts and figures and how long and this and how long was that. And 
he was just stunned by that and how recent human beings came, uh, uh, you know, developed on Earth or evolved on Earth. So um, I had two kids. They were absolutely glued and speechless by the time it was over. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit because a little while ago we got a listener letter that I'm going to bring up related to that. But it, it was very interesting, and uh, if you have not seen it, warning spoilers. This is available in the United States on Fox, as well as National Geographic Channel on Fox. It airs Sundays at 9 p.m., as well as Mondays on National Geographic. Check your local listings for your area in the world, most likely on a National Geographic network. Um, but it's very similar, episode one, I must add, to episode one of the original Cosmos. They both started off looking over the shores of the ocean. They both included the spaceship of the imagination. And again, as you mentioned, discussed the cosmic calendar, which takes everything and puts it into a time perspective, which I think they did a great job of. And the big difference, I've rewatched the original before seeing the new one. The big difference I can think of, obviously looking at it, is the, um, the graphics and the science behind it. It's still explained in an extraordinarily simple way. But just looking at things and how we see them today and the graphics they used were phenomenal. I mean, passing by the planets and, and be careful to, with discussing Pluto, showing Voyager with the record on it. And a lot of homages to Sagan himself. Yeah, right down to the fact that Neil deGrasse Tyson had a personal and very touching relationship with him. That when he was a 17-year-old aspiring astronomer spent an afternoon with him, took a bus from New York City up to Ithaca, where he was a professor at Cornell College, and he showed his actual personal diary, where it mentioned that he had an appointment with Neil on that very day, and then showed his copy of Carl Sagan's book and this inscription inside of it to Neil, but also just about the man he was, and not only was Neil touched by what a phenomenal astronomer he was, but what an incredible human being he was. And I just, you know, who better? I mean, who better than to reboot the series or pick up in his footsteps than Neil deGrasse Tyson? It just really was an amazing tie-in to how he's bridging the next generation of the show for viewers. Yeah, it was very touching there at the end, again, as you're mentioning, when he showed the inscription of his book, standing basically where Carl stood in 1980, you know, when the series first came out, not knowing what a huge impact it would have to the scientific community. And obviously the reboot, I think, is doing the same in branching out to a whole new era of people with it being on Fox, which... It was brought there as a result of, and with the help of Seth MacFarlane, as I mentioned, a family guy, which airs on Fox in the United States. And I posted on Twitter to ask, send people their thoughts after the show, and um, one person brought up something interesting, because some of the artwork is actually done by Seth MacFarlane, the animations that you'll see in the show. For example, they um, showed different scientists and their discoveries and you know their stories all in animated form. Um, this was Denise Ryan who sent on Twitter saying, I thought the cartoons were on the cheapo side, but the other special effects make up for it. The touching story about Carl Sagan inspiring the next generation reminds me to be a better mentor and create opportunities for kids. And I think that's basically what we all just agreed on there, at least you and I did, Gina. Yes. I don't know, I kind of like the cartoons. I mean, again, simplistic I think is a you know the, the cartoons that did not have to be a video game quality animation they're telling a story and I thought they they were looking dated 
to tell the story of some of our earliest astronomers. I thought the artwork was indicative of centuries ago. So I didn't know if I would necessarily call it on the cheapo side. I thought it was more on the appropriate side for what it was trying to express. Right. He was taking a look at the story of Giordano Bruno and uh, his look at the universe as a limitless expanse of space and time, which was interesting. Um, and I know one person had said to me that, um, the person said on Twitter, quote, Waiting for the moment soon when Neil says evolution is a fact. When Carl said it, I leapt from the sofa and cheered. Yeah, well, he definitely talked about evolution. He still talked about the beginning of life being one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of science. Mm -hmm. And putting it into perspective with the calendar was also, was also great. What do you guys think? Well, I'm probably the one person on the planet I've never seen Cosmos, um, the original series or the reboot here. I think it's phenomenal to have something that popular uh, come back and to be given what sounds like a very uh, serious treatment and uh, hopefully they do a good job and we'll get some attention and change some perspectives of that people have on science. As for me, I, uh, I, you know, I have to admit and a lot of people are going to go boo right about now. But when I first saw uh, Sagan's Cosmos, I watched a few minutes of it, saw him in the spaceship, and I lost interest. Uh, I'm always kind of a tech guy uh, in terms of the machines and the gears and the engines, not so much as the technology, as Sawyer and I are well aware. But uh, the, you know, the the big heavy lift machines have always been the things that kind of interest me in the um, – the, the astronomy aspect of, of space exploration, I don't know. I've just never really gotten into the, anything beyond our solar system because I think in terms of the technology we currently have on hand, uh, if, as, as actually physically exploring it, we're kind of stuck in our own uh, backyard, if you will, of our solar system. So uh, I, I haven't watched it. Well, on the contrary, I think what he tries to explain is how here on Earth the cosmos affects us. In every, in every way possible, how we're made of stardust and why and how and how we've evolved and how the cosmos has played a role in that evolution. So I hear what you're saying that, you know, in our lifetime, is it likely that any of us ever experience beyond what we can physically see? Probably not, unless some amazing innovation is made very quickly. However, I think that's the beauty of the series, that it brings the infinite universe into your home and you begin to realize everyday observations and you know how they've been impacted by outside of earth and I think that's the true pull of the series because I think it gets people thinking more than they've ever have before well I, I agree with you on the terms of astronomy I'm just saying from a personal perspective uh, I, I tend to focus on things within our solar system. However, you are correct. Uh, the universe, we are born of the universe. We are star stuff. But from a personal perspective, I, I tend to kind of th keep things, uh, I, I guess they say compartmentalize them. And I tend to look at things within our solar system more. And things that are beyond that, I just uh, I, I don't focus on quite as much. Uh, I can see where you're coming from with that. And yeah, the spaceship uh, is an interesting concept, and I think it's almost too overdone in the new one, but 
the concept of it, I think, is what's important. And I think Neil deGrasse Tyson has done a great job. But um, before we go, I do want to link this into a listener letter that we got a few weeks back uh, from Adam in Sydney, Australia. Um, he wrote, Hi, Talking Space. After recently listening to episode 536, I was thinking about what NASA can do to market itself. I thought they should make an agreement with the state education departments to include some current space missions into elementary school science syllabi. This would engage children in schools and not cost the kind of marketing dollars a TV campaign would consume. I'm an Australian from Sydney, so I don't know much about the U.S. education system, but it may be a viable option. Love the show, Adam. So I was thinking, yeah, this may not be a NASA initiative, but what about something like this for classrooms? And, you know, do you think, obviously, watching the 80s version of Cosmos may not inspire kids the same way, but what about something like this? Let me circle back to the spaceship. My youngest child looked at this and, you know, Ugh, what is this? Why does mommy want me to watch this? He saw that spaceship. That was the end of the complaining. That reeled him in. And, you know, let's look at who the audience is. This show is designed to inspire. Well, let's all hope it inspires the youth of the world. And if this is what, you know, that concept draws my son into this show, power to it. So, you know, I can understand the adult looking at it like, oh, you know, come on, do we really need the made-up spaceship? But it worked for that generation that instantly sucked them in. Yeah, I agree with Gina on this because, uh, you know, following NASA and, and you know, paying a close attention to what they've done, I've, I've long complained about, at least back in the early uh, mid, I mean, early 2000s, I, I noted that they really didn't seem to very do a very good job of packaging what they were doing to attract uh, younger uh, folks, and that doesn't describe Neil deGrasse Tyson at all. He has got his finger on the pulse. He is, is very hip. He's very uh, relatable to younger folks, and then tying that in with uh, nice CGI and nice packaging, very smart. Uh, I, I think it's what we, we need to have that in there. Unfortunately, in a way, it's kind of an indictment of who we are as a society, but we need that in there to keep the young people involved. So I agree with Gina. It's very important and very positive that they have that kind of stuff in it. I agree. I mean, it was a big part of the original show, and uh, I think it, it it really does spark imagination in kids, and that's why I brought up that specific listener letter. Although it does ask what NASA can do to market itself, and that's something we've been talking about on this show since season one back in 2009. In fact, we've been talking about this since episode one. But I, I think this is a great tool. I don't know if this is necessarily a NASA tool, but NASA can do to market itself. But NASA was tweeting right along with it as they were going through Spaceship Earth, as they were going through the solar system. They were tweeting, hey, there's, you know, you just saw Jupiter, which we have a spacecraft around. Or, hey, there's Pluto. New Horizons will arrive next year. So uh, I think that this show will be a great tool. It was a huge boost for the scientific community in terms of education when it came out in the 80s. And I think bringing this out again today with someone who's relatable to today's kids with technology that you would see in 2014, not 1980, I think making it more up-to-date one will hopefully be something that should be standard education in classrooms and shown and be a new teaching tool. Especially after hearing how your kids responded to Agena, I think that's the big part of it is the fact that kids will enjoy this. Yeah, and I mean, he brings it down to a simplistic level for, let's face it, most of mainstream America. However, I mean, let's talk about who, who he potentially really needs to reach, and that is young people. If it's too over their heads, they're going to walk away from it. 
But if he keeps it, you know, in that spot, I think they'll, they'll embrace it. And with that, we want to hear what you thought about it. What did you think of Cosmos? And uh, what do you want to see in the future where you hope it will go? Let us know. Email us at mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. Tweet us at Talking Space or post on our wall at facebook.com slash Talking Space. That, that brings this episode to its conclusion. But before we end it, I do want to make an announcement. Part of the reason why Talking Space has been off the air these last few weeks is we've been working on updating our website. Although it's not live yet, expect in the very near future to see a brand new TalkingSpaceOnline.com. We thought we'd give you a heads up as to what's been going on in part of that time, and wait that one until the very end, because we're excited about it and we hope you will be too when we release it. But in the meantime, let's thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here. Very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> Sorry, throwback to the 70s. <laughs> That's more than fine. Thank you as well for joining us, Gina Hurley. Oh, you're very welcome. So glad to do it on the heels of such a great premiere of that of Cosmos 2.0. <laughs> Oh, yes. And thank you as well for joining us. Once again, special guest from the Spaceflight Group, Jason Ryan. Hey, it's always a pleasure to chat with you guys. You guys talk about the most fascinating topics. I love it. And we're glad you can contribute as well. And of course, if you want more on those topics, be sure to visit SpaceflightInsider.com and check out more from the Spaceflight Group. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter as well. Because we're your weekly recap and analysis of the news, but if you want daily stuff, they're a good source to go to. And so with that, of course, we thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again next time. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.